but there's almost darker forms now with whether it's the the effective altruism which is you know uh, a lot of people are talking about now since the crash of ftx which was a crypto that crypto exchange started by one of the uh, main funders of the effective altruism movement which is the idea that you don't do as much good doing good as you do by making money and then donating some of it to do good so stop worrying about treating people nicely stop worrying about whether your business is you know destroying the planet or or hurting other people as long as you make a ton of money you're going to more efficiently by some utilitarian algorithm that we've developed we can justify you take five percent of your income and give it to charity you're doing more good long term than you are by actually being <laughs> being a good person author media theorist and fellow podcaster doug rushkoff joins the plutopia podcast as we discuss his latest book survival of the richest escape fantasies of the tech billionaires we also explore techno-utopians, capitalism, billionaire tech bros, psychedelic tech bros, the mindset, going meta, the blockchain and crypto, QAnon, and much more. So welcome everybody to yet another episode of the Plutopia podcast, a very special episode because Doug Rushkoff is with us today and he has just released a new book which is kind of an amazing book. In fact, I don't know how we're going to cover even a fraction of it in our conversation today because we've only got an hour. But the book is called Survival of the Richest. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's like, what, it's the Rosetta Stone of contemporary reality. It <laughs> sort of explains everything. How did you do that, Doug? How, what, how, how did you pull all those insights together? Well, with more trying to figure out how how these experiences happened, how they make sense. You know, uh, uh, I've been alive a while now. I mean, and I've been watching the the net go from its its potential to its reality. You know, from around 1990 to today, I guess. So it's you know 33 years of of that, and. Um, yeah, I guess I had to make I had to make sense of it. So I took I, sort of my 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 intuition combined with my research and history and looking at what are the threads that that got us that got us here between capitalism and technology and engineering and hubris and new uh, masculinity and you know Western civilization. How do they all sort of combine to get us to a place where? a bunch of college dropout billionaires are looking for ways to escape from the rest of us. Now, back in the old days, they called us techno-utopian, but this is hardly a utopia. Well, it's techno-solutionism, at least. you know, And I think they're looking for a, a utopia for them, even if it's on Mars or in the cloud or uh, you know, in, in some uh, uh, bunker somewhere or on an island, seasteading. Uh, you know, Maybe one man's dystopia is another man's utopia. In their case, yeah, but that's the way yeah. capitalism has always worked. You make a lot of money and externalize the damage to someone else. You come to the Western world and do like Hobbes said and treat the Native Americans like, 
you know, shrubs that you not even shrubs, but you shouldn't treat shrubs that way, but like shrubs that you can just bulldoze over and not, you know, see them as part of the landscape rather than as uh, divine thinking creatures. You treat all of humanity that way. Really, that's the big difference today. We've been doing this for centuries, right? We find people usually darker than us and take their land and their women and enslave their people and take their resources and whatever. Now, just that capitalism's gotten to the place now that that the the elite and the companies on the top, they're not just doing it to other people. They're doing it to their own people. You know, They're doing yeah. it. To, to Americans too. Well, now you get the slaves to to vote for you, right? Willingly, yeah, yeah. because they see sure in you they power. see in you a chance for their own freedom of expression and all. I mean, in some ways, it's the failure of Marxism was what we're looking at. You know, Marxism had such a uh, uh, bless his heart, but he was such a social scientist at at heart. You know, was he was Groucho looking... or Chico. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. This is more Zeppo, I think. Or <laughs> we're going to the more the 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 further out Marx ones, Marx brothers. Um, no, but I mean, he, you know what I mean. It was there was something almost techno solutionist in his model as well. We can use sort of math and spreadsheet and equality and make everything work like that. And it just I think it it feels to a lot of people, particularly a hubist, hubistic tech bro. Um, as some sort of a, a diminution of the human spirit. I mean, and I identify with that. I wrote books like that, books like Team Human. We're all about, you know, where's my, where's me? Where's my agency? Where's my autonomy? So, you know, I, I, I you know, identify with that, with that sensibility. Early in the book, you uh, wrote that uh, wealth and powers and uh, our experience of wealth and, wealth and power is akin to removing the part of the brain critical to empathy and socially appropriate behavior. And uh, locally here in Central Texas, we have a person who might be the poster boy for such behavior, uh, Elon something or other. But uh, when, you, when you wrote that, uh, I'm sure you were observing how things were then. Has that changed in the interim, or have we gotten better about has had the wealthy gotten better about that, or have we gotten worse? Um. Well, I mean, in that section of the book, I'm I'm referring to a couple of studies that were done on billionaires, where they found that they don't respond the same way we do to like a picture of a starving baby. You know, the part of the brain that's supposed to supposed to the part of the brain that lights up for most people, you know, where your mirror neurons are, are, are showing that you identify with the, with the pain and suffering of the other, those don't light up for the billionaire. And, and most people now believe that the, the reason why that's happened to them, because it doesn't happen before um, uh, the reason why it's happened to them is uh, the kinds of compromises and, and externalized harm they've had to um, justify, uh, uh, you know, uh, giving to others um, has forced them to sort of uh, desensitize, desensitize to that. I mean, what we've seen, I mean, you can't really say much since I wrote this, since I only wrote it a couple months ago, not that much has changed. Um, what we have seen over the last few years, though, is the development of things that look like empathy or things that look like charity or that look like concern for social justice, but are not. So, you know, you could look at uh, uh, 
you know, uh, uh, social entrepreneurialism? How can I invest in something, make a ton of money and do good for the world? I'm going to, you know, you can invest in some, you know, venture capital fund of Al Gore and, you know, invest in a bunch of solar panels or lithium batteries or something else. As long as, you know, there's that sort of that version of the Green New Deal, which says that, yes, and. You know, yes, we can save the world and become millionaires and billionaires and create more jobs and grow the economy and and grow the GDP at the same time. But there's almost darker forms now, whether it's the the effective altruism, which is, you know, a lot of people are talking about now since the crash of FTX, which was a crypto that crypto exchange started by one of the uh, main funders of the effective altruism movement, which is the idea that you don't do as much good doing good as you do by making money and then donating some of it to do good. So stop worrying about treating people nicely. Stop worrying about whether your business is, you know, destroying the planet or, or hurting other people. As long as you make a ton of money, you're going to more efficiently, by some utilitarian algorithm that we've developed, we can justify, you take 5% of your income and give it to charity, you're doing more good long-term than you are by actually being <laughs> being a good person. And um. I don't buy that at all. It's like a pure ends justifies the means uh, uh, way of understanding, uh, 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 you know, of doing good. And then finally, there's the group, you know, the the people who I most identified with, I guess, the sort of more psychedelic tech bros, you know, who they've got their tech company, but now they're going to fly down to ayahuasca, you know, uh, ayahuasca central down in uh, South America somewhere and do a vision vine with a expensive shaman and see the light and then come back with a software stack to save humanity. You know, some new humane technology stack game B meta modern, you know, eco civilization uh, that that's going to, uh, you know, as long as we all follow your rules and use, you know, use your complete plan, then everything will work out for everybody. One of the Key concepts in your book is uh, you refer to it as the mindset. What is the mindset? Well, the mindset. Uh, yeah, I mean, the mindset is a kind of uh, Silicon Valley belief system that that you know it's got a lot of a, a lot of facets to it. You know, between techno solutionism and capitalism and this kind of scientific. Uh, atheism, where you know they they have a, have a staunch materialism and this understanding of all problems can be engineered um, engineered away. But really, what it comes down to is a belief that with enough money and technology, these dudes can outrun the damage they're creating with money and technology. You know, so the idea is that you can somehow build a car that could drive fast enough to escape from its own exhaust. And that uh, is basically insane. You know, <laughs> it kind of, it defies the laws of physics. You know, you can't, you there, there isn't a, a, a perpetual energy machine that, that will, you know, let them do this. But the mindset ends up then seeing us, humanity, as kind of the first stage of a, of a rocket that can sort of be be discarded as the 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 elite or the 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 chosen ones 
continue on their journey. <laughs> so human beings, the 8 billion of us alive today, are the kind of the larva in uh, humanity's evolution towards a, a uh, it's, its great metamorphosis to, uh, to its next stage that, you know, none of us will get to experience. Wow, kind of they sound a little like vampires, you know, feeding off the blood of the masses. Yeah, and it's what it's what dictators and capitalists have always done, only now with this sort of extra boost of digital technology, um they have a, a it's it's both accelerated like almost like a, in a in a uh, when a person takes steroids it's kind of accelerated for a time until they crash but it also digital has allowed them to create this kind of a symbol system it's it's you know digital is not real digital is is meta it's a metaphor so you've got these guys uh, uh, and that's almost the easiest way to understand the mindset is people that want to go meta on the world that we're living in, whether it's Peter Thiel going from zero to one and wanting to, you know, telling all businesses, you've got to be one order of magnitude above everybody else. You have to be at least 10x better to avoid the competition down there. Or Mark Zuckerberg literally, you know, building meta when Facebook dies, you know, you go from web two to web three or financial guys, you know creating derivatives of stocks or derivatives of derivatives there everyone keeps going meta on reality in order to kind of uh, uh, operate from from one order of magnitude above mere mortals and see themselves as as gods well when uh zuckerberg went meta you know it uh, seemed to crash uh, the worth of uh, his uh empire and uh there's a lot of this, uh, you know, grant, well, not grants and showboating in, in tech where you've got to show up the competition and everybody, you know, everybody needs to get involved in whatever the latest thing is. And I've seen that with just saying the word blockchain will immediately get their interest. When we did a uh, podcast about blockchain and I put it into the uh, tag on the uh, YouTube channel, um, it, it, it generated one of the biggest crowds we've ever had on a on a podcast just because of the block the, the blockchain tag. Everybody wanted to be on it. Everybody wants to be in the blockchain, no matter whether they understand it or not. And now, you know, crypto is you know the. The, the big Ponzi scheme. You, you wrote about the Ponzi scheme in the early internet. Well, this is the latest Ponzi scheme. Where does crypto go from here? Well, it's all really self-similar, right? The thing that took the internet 10 years to do, you know, which was have its dot-com boom and bust, took, you know, uh, uh, it took crypto, you know, two years or whatever, well, more. I mean, really, crypto's been around since, you know, 2011 when Bitcoin came up. I mean, Bitcoin came up not as a Ponzi. Bitcoin came up kind of as tech support for Occupy Wall Street. You know, it was, okay, we can use pretty good privacy and Tor networks to create a, a uh, these sort of stacks of PGP authenticated transactions that we will store in blocks. And we're going to do it on the Tor network so that it's decentralized. And those of us who understood that understood the, the possibility of it was for point-to-point -point authentication. 
peer-to-peer authentication between people was, was the joy of it. And the problem was that people looked at it the same way they looked at the internet. The internet, we saw it as, oh my gosh, peer-to-peer media. We are the media. This is going to be cool. Wall Street comes and looks at it and says, oh no, this is something to invest in and created the dot-com boom and bust and all that. Same with crypto. Oh, peer-to-peer authentication. No, Ponzi scheme. Let's invest in these token, the tokens themselves. You know, it's like, it's like investing in the poker chips themselves. And they are just poker chips, particularly in a world where you can only pay taxes with a national currency. Anything else is not money. Anything else is a representation of money and only becomes money when you translate it. So it was never about the tokens. The tokens were there not to gain value. The tokens were there to- uh, As currency, uh, right? Yes, as currency, but it's a- it's not a value in itself. It's a ledger. And so the same, the same crazy thing happens. You know, and and the funny thing is people like you or me who may understand the technology, because we're back from the cypherpunk days. You know, we were writing and hanging out with them. We understood what this was. And I would write pieces about it. And I would have sort of young people or or crypto enthusiasts saying, oh, Rushkoff doesn't understand. He really doesn't understand how this works. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand how, how this works or what's been or what's happening here. And the thing is, the blockchain is still um, an interesting ledger solution. It's just you have to look at who's getting who's getting paid to maintain that ledger. So in traditional banks, we know who's getting paid. Those bankers and their shareholders are getting paid. Who's getting paid? When you pay gas fees on your Ether transaction, who is getting paid, right? It's a new legion of elite bankers. You know, before it was the people with the biggest computers. Now we switch to, to proof of stake. So now it's what? The biggest stakeholders. What does this mean? The people with the most Ether get to say which transactions on Ether are real. And I understand why we do that, because they've got the greatest stake in making sure that its integrity is maintained. But we're just passing money again to a wealthy elite, a different wealthy elite, maybe, but it's another wealthy elite. So it's it's nuts. The thing I love about it is, though, is where you see like... um. Gosh, like Primavera de Filippi in in France, this this great thinker, people who are using the blockchain to understand governance or you know models for human interaction. There, there's you know the blockchain is a powerful technology and a powerful metaphor and a, a way to look at well, how would we if we could program governance? What would that look like? You know, and what would how does you know and to run experiments and simulation? How would rank choice voting? you know, with proxies work differently than uh, individual voting. I mean, not that democracy will ever catch up with this, but there's really fun ways to look at um, uh, way people interact. And once you get the the get rich quick thing off it, the internet was fun until people were trying to make money off it. You know, crypto was fun until it was an investment. When FTX uh, died, a lot of NFTs died. It's it's like from the uh, moans and groans I was seeing on the internet. It was as if they had you know put a torch to uh, you know the uh, Museum of Modern Art or something. But it just it it it's hard to feel uh, sympathy for people who invested in these things. Right. I mean, I do feel I always feel sympathy for artists 
who get screwed, you know, no matter what. But, you know, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful, hopeful that many artists understood that when they make, you know, 10,000 random animated gifs or static gifs out of some component parts that they've created that um there's a limit to how much money they can actually make off that you know and forever uh you know that there were a few or you know hopefully they were recognizing that oh if a top dj and pop star are given free nfts for them to then go hawking these things on Twitter or at the, you know, VMA awards, you know, when I saw, I saw Steve Aoki, a very big DJ, when he accepted his VMA award, he was just like, to the moon, we're all going to make it. You know, he was, he was, it was worse than the, even than the Super Bowl ads when, uh, when uh, some famous movie stars and TV stars started hawking these exchanges. Cause I was thinking, wow. So the artist has become the, the pure pyramid scheme booster. And I understand they want to make money, but but those ones, the ones who are getting in at the bottom of those pyramids were already millionaire artists, you know, just getting doing a come hither um, for others. And you always leave someone holding the bag at the end. So is that like artists being infected by the mindset? It is in some ways. You know, it's it's I I. I hate to blame artists for, I mean, yeah, some millionaire and billionaire artists were infected, you know, or certainly millionaire artists were infected by the mindset. Um, and they are the ones that, that, um, that I challenge, you know, when I see the, um, the artist who developed the original uh, Pepe the Frog comic books, who was not a wealthy guy, able to make some money off Pepe. Now that, you know, his meme, his his little Pepe was turned into an evil meme and that he was able to reclaim it and make a couple of million bucks off his NFTs. I kind of like that. I can't, I can't not, you know, Matt Fury deserves whatever, he's a real artist. He de deserves what he can get. But um, yeah, the, the, the idea that you can create these uh, almost perpetual motion machines of supposed wealth building um, with a with a digital trick is certainly that's mindset. You know, it's it's that's what they should call bootstrapping. It's funny these the 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 almost the best evidence of the mindset is a founder of a startup or a VC. They use the term bootstrapping when they're talking about a real business, right? What to them, what bootstrapping comes from is Baron von Munchausen in the story. The idea was that this guy could lift himself up by his own bootstraps, which of course is impossible. You can't pick yourself up, right? So it's this magical thing that can't actually happen. Now, when venture capitalists use the term bootstrapping, what they mean is a business that uses this really weird technique. The idea is that you make something, then sell it for slightly more than it costs you to make, then take the profit and invest it back in your business so that your business can function. So it's the most traditional, real, value-oriented way of starting a business to venture capitalists. It's magic. Right. That's magic. That's crazy. You know, but it's the opposite. What they're trying to do is magic, which is take all this venture funding and throw it into something and have it grow perpetually forever. Like Wired Magazine's long boom. 
So that's how you get these companies like Twitter that when they're making $2 billion a year profit, they're considered an abject failure by Wall Street because Twitter peaked around $2 billion a year. That's what they were making when they were a 140 character messaging app. You should be able to go to grandma and say, I made a 140 character messaging app. I'm now making $2 billion a year. Yay. But no, that in the mindset is an abject failure because it peaked and stopped at $2 billion. According to the mindset, you've got to keep growing exponentially forever or you're a failure. Because Which is not sustainable. Outrun, right? You've got to keep outrunning the yeah. damage you're creating. Oh, my Lord. You know, you. one of the things you talk about in the book is science and how the mindset is rooted in empirical science. How, what, how does science sort of feed into what we're talking about? And what is the role of science in the predicament du jour here? Well, again, it's like real science versus scientism is just like the real internet versus the dot-com boom. So science is cool. Science is the process of building a model based on questions. And you keep asking questions and you keep uh, uh, refining the model. Um, it's a beautiful process. Scientism is a, a staunchly atheistic, materialist, evidence-based understanding of the world. And it's fine as a meaning system, but it has to acknowledge that there are other meaning systems. You know, where I got where I got into trouble with this was um I was at a party at John Brockman's house, the 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 agent, the literary agent. Um, this is before I was a client of his, but I was kind of cool because I was like the internet kid at the time in the early 90s. No one understood about the internet. So I'd get invited to these parties with all the scientists like, you know, Daniel Dennett and Steven Pinker and, you know, whoever they were and, and, and Richard Dawkins. So I'm at this party with Richard Dawkins talking about memes. I had written a book called Media Virus, which wasn't based on his memes. It was based on sort of uh, I understood viral media as this sort of unconscious expression of hidden agendas in our culture so that the Rodney King videotape would spread because there was an unacknowledged conversation that we needed to have. And Dawkins had this very different understanding of memes, that memes basically play human beings, that human beings aren't really alive in the way that we understand it. We're not fully conscious. We don't really have autonomy the way you or I might, or, or soul or spirit of any sort. We are sort of passively responding to memes, like, like a cassette recorder playing a tape. And I was making this argument for human beings and the universe that we're leaning towards something. We're leaning towards uh, uh, you know moral outcomes, that there's this, uh, uh, there is a soul in in matter and maybe consciousness preceded matter not it's not an emergent phenomenon of matter and he and his friends they were laughing at me with scientism saying oh you know you're you're Doug you're a moralist that's what you are poor little thing and then these are the guys that 20 years later we got pictures of them on Jeffrey Epstein's plane the Lolita Express going off to the TED conference and some of them down to his island and all and I'm thinking oh right their amoral understanding of scientism dovetails perfectly well with a guy who thinks that we're just genes, so he may as well spread his seed as far and wide as possible and treat other human beings, these 14, 15-year-old girls, as vessels 
But that comes from a scientific tradition that dates back to Francis Bacon. When he was arguing for empirical science, he said, empirical science will allow us to take nature by the forelock, hold her down, and submit her to our will. So he's from a tradition of scientists, the kind of scientists, the sort of eugenics scientists that Jeffrey Epstein was funding. It's that same tradition come down to us. And that's not real. I don't think that's real science. That's something else. That's scientism as domination in order to make nature uh, uh, more quantified, more containable, less frightening. All that dark, scary, female, soil, night, witchy, forest stuff right, can be defined and tamed and deanimated by science. Whereas really what we need is the opposite. We need to reanimate, um, you know, not to get spiritual on you, but we need to reanimate the human soul. You know, the thing that can't be auto-tuned, the real signal, um, what they're calling noise is what we have to retrieve if we want to, uh, 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 well, uh, develop the, the uh, uh, social, spiritual, biological immune response, you know, and uh, immune uh, immunity that we need to move through this next stage of humanity. What I'm hearing is that much of this stuff is fed by a kind of alienation from the world and reality. And I mean, from a Buddhist perspective, you know, a Buddhist has the sense that we're all connected, that we're all part of everything. And it sounds like you're describing uh, a sense that we are absolutely not connected, that humans are detached from nature and that nature is a thing to be subjugated. Yeah, I mean, and I could see even finding a balance between the two, right? Sometimes you do want to kind of dominate nature a bit. Like, oh, there's ants, there are ants everywhere, ah, you know, I'm going to step on them or move their nest or get them out of here. There's a hornet's nest in my on my porch, you know? I'm going to dominate a little nature here before it dominates me. I mean, there's there's I mean, maybe the Buddhist wouldn't do that, but I mean, I can see living in a world where we have some balance between the I am one with everything, you know, no distinction, no preference of of the the of the enlightened Buddhist with a bit of the, I'm going to dig a hole over here. <laughs> I'm looking for There's water. something in your book about a strategy for like doing away with mosquitoes in a way that works with nature versus against nature. You well, recall I mean, that? Well, there, I mean, there was that thing you described where I think that it, I can't remember exactly what it was. It had to do with, um, removing grasses, maybe. Well, I mean, and, there's all there's. I mean, or burning burning away grasses. I mean, there's permaculture ways of doing things, you know, that are more uh, more in line with great indigenous practices. So you look at say the the mindset way of getting rid of mosquitoes was in a well-meaning, sweet man that he is, Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation, or the the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They wanted to eradicate malaria in Africa, so they funded mosquito nets for African villages. It was an idea that came up at the World Economic Forum um, when the one where where Sharon Sharon Stone got up and conducted an impromptu auction, you know, or bidding to get to get um, donations to get mosquito nets for the African uh, African people. 
and they shipped over all these great mosquito nets and the Africans used them to catch fish in the local stream. Turns out the mosquito nets not only caught the small baby fish, um, but also poisoned the water because they had mosquito poison on them and they killed the fish in their streams. And then we're depending on, you know, <laughs> more charity for uh, for food now. Um, so they didn't, you know, what Bill Gates and his Gates Foundation didn't look at were the second and third order effects. You know, what, what, what we systems thinkers would call second and third order effects other than getting mosquitoes out of their, their, their tents. What else is going to happen? Um, another way, I mean, and this is a lot of this is from uh, Tyson Yunkaporta, who wrote a great book um, um, called, uh, uh, what's it called? Stories? Uh, uh, what's his book? Well, you're going to look it up. Um, it, he, he has a book of, of great of great yarns um, of, of from from, you know, the uh, Aboriginal people. And uh, sand tribes, sand sand tribes, I think it's called, um, and uh, or sand. You look, Yunkaporta. What is it called? Yunkaporta book. Um, it's called Sand Talk. Yeah, um, and in there, I mean, he and and I don't know if it was in that book or when he came on my podcast. We were talking about different ways to um, move into harmony with nature. So he was saying that the real problem with Western civilization is that we're stationary, where, you know, Aboriginal tribes, indigenous people learned to move around. Um, and so you'd move, you know, you'd go here when the salmon are there, you'd go over here when that's happening. And then, you know, you, you would, you know, even as part of your stewardship of nature, you might burn the grass in a certain um, a certain period, which led there to be fewer mosquitoes. So then later when you were fishing in the in the stream where the where the salmon were coming, you wouldn't be all bitten by mosquitoes. But at the same time, you were actually helping the the forest renew itself. Yeah, so that's the were thing all... I was talking about earlier. Yeah, that I was remembering from the book. Right. So there were all these ways that, you know, the indigenous people had. It's not like they're passive. They're still doing things, but they're doing things after observing nature and making, you know, very small incremental changes in order to, you know, live in harmony with nature rather than, you know, clear cutting a forest and then, you know, trying to feed more and more Monsanto chemicals to plants because the topsoil has been completely eroded by by, you know, a monocultural agriculture. My opinion of the a lot of the billionaire philanthropists is the being similar to the person who lives a really horrifyingly bad, evil life and on their deathbed suddenly finds religion, thinking that, well, that'll get me off and I'll go to heaven. And that's kind of how I see it. Like Bezos, you know, giving away his uh, fortune, supposedly. It, it, is it, are, are there really good billionaire philanthropist well if you're a good billionaire you don't need to be a philanthropist right <laughs> because you've been making your money in a way that helps the world there's almost no way to be a good billionaire because it's it's it, if you've accumulated that much money then you've extracted you know there's no reason to you know the the closest thing to a good billionaire was the uh, patagonia guy you know who uh, you know, had to, you know, try to get rid of that company. You know, it was really hard 
um, you know, he let it actually he let it go too long. Um, so it got it, it. He ended up in a state of of financial obesity. You know, where what do you do? How do you offload this this tremendous uh, burden? Um, you know, and he managed to he managed to uh, uh, you know turn it into a basically into a nonprofit. Um, you know, at great tax expense and this and that. It wasn't done efficiently, but he he managed to do it. Um, and almost nobody is doing is doing that. But no, most of these guys are not looking looking for that. They they, I mean, some of them do mean well, right? They mean well for humanity. I don't think Ray Kurzweil, you know, when he's dedicating himself to uploading human consciousness to the computer, I think he looks at that as our last best hope for continuing something slightly human, you know, moving forward. I think Elon Musk genuinely believes we've got to get off this planet if we want to survive because this place is trashed. You know, I think, uh, uh, you know, Bezos is, is similar. We've got to, you know, well, he wants to use space in order to do uh, all our mining and and dangerous things up there. Although the, the amount of energy you need to get your mining up there is pretty is pretty intense. I don't know if, again, if that works on a physics level. I, I still feel like we've got... Uh, uh, we would have an easier path of, uh, you know, changing changing the way we do things um, in order to move towards something more resilient rather than pedal to the metal. Um, let's, you know, use more, you know, more, bigger, louder, you know, second verse, same as the first, but louder. Um, I, I don't think is going gonna, is gonna to do it. How about Peter Thiel? What do you think he wants? Peter Thiel? Well, he's pretty explicit about what he wants. It's kind of a techno monarchy. Um he he believes that you know a few people can rise above everybody else you know and sort of uh you know operate from one order of magnitude above you know the common man and that many people kind of want that you know that's part of what you know what they feel what he and musk and other people who donated to trump originally what they feel um the 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 smart ones, if you want to use that word, the ones who are doing it kind of cynically and intellectually, feel that this is their proof that there's a lot of people who really do want an authoritarian just to run things and to tell them what to do, that democracy was kind of a failed experiment and that there's something much better. Let people feel like they, they, they are, uh, they're free, you know, and that that's going to matter more to people than that they have any kind of real rights. And, uh, so Thiel is, 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 uh, believes, and who's to say he's not right? I'm sure Kissinger believes this is true, too, at this point, you know, that, that he or someone like him could administrate humanity better than we poor idiots can uh, care for ourselves. How does that relate to the Steve Bannon kind of thing of, like, creating chaos and burning everything down? Well, they, they're strange bedfellows. I mean, they're... Steve Bannon is very suspicious. I mean, in the end, Steve Bannon doesn't like Peter Thiel or any of the techno solutionists. Steve Bannon um, sees these uh, uh, tech bros. It's interesting. Steve Bannon loved my book, Team Human, you know, and kept trying to get me to go on their podcast. I couldn't do it because I didn't want to um, uh, endorse what he's doing by, you know, implicitly endorse his his worldview. But there's a a, a, a strain of fascists who see um, technology and techno utopianism as the main enemy. You know that 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 we're we're 
that 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 woman who won uh, the the ultra right wing woman who won in Italy, the speech that she made when she won, you know, as as head of the parliament there, was I am not a number, I am not a consumer, I am a human being, and that's what you know a lot of the the Bannon style fascists believe is that that we've got to return to our you know fundamental more natural uh, more natural state, and that this um uh. uh you know, techno uh, technocracy um, is is the way that the elite, you know, the the World Economic Forum and the World Bank and Davos guys and Gates and all the way that they're trying to control humanity and take away our power. To a certain extent, they're right, right? But they're they're uh, at least that part of it that human beings, you know, I mean. What do we have in common with Hitler? You know, you got to look at it finally. Hitler like nature, right? <laughs> Hitler like humans, you know? But Hitler also like killing people, you know? And magic. Like the occult. Yeah. And the occult, like psychedelics, you know? So they have certain things in common. But, you know, but he was having a bad trip because he had a very different set and setting, right, about about the world. You, you talked a little bit in your book about how you and... Sam, who is I'm I'm sure some other name, uh, got into Q. The whole discussion of Q and QAnon. Um, so, how does that phenomenon relate to what we've been talking about? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I see followers of Q are people who take Gates and Musk and Teal and Bezos. At their word, the people who believe that, you know, these technologies can actually do what these people claim, they're the most afraid, you know, and you would be, too. I mean, luckily, none of us. I mean, Musk can't even run Twitter, much less, you know, I'm not I'm not afraid of him. You know, it's, <laughs> these guys don't have that capacity. Their technologies don't have those those capabilities. They can't program us into submission. You know, the the for all of the the brilliance of a movie like The Social Dilemma, you know, on Netflix, which showed you know the nefarious intent of the social networks. The problem with those movies is they make it look like they really work. You know, that human beings, oh, we're so susceptible and all they have to do is, you know, throw an algorithm at us and we're all going to slit our wrists. Um, no, you know, we're not. Most of us do not respond like that. I mean, yes, they're, the vulnerable do. They are vulnerable. The most vulnerable among us are, are uh, you need to be protected from this stuff. But the guys making these things, they're not wizards. You know, the, the Las Vegas slot machines, sure, there's some gamblers who get stuck on them, but. I don't see you there. I don't see me there. I've been there. I played with them and I left, right? And it's not because I'm super. It's not because I've got God on my side or some great spirit, right? So you know, just because they took the Las Vegas slot machine algorithms and put them into, into TikTok, you know, doesn't mean that, oh no, now all is lost. But the kind of people who believe it, who really believe it, you know, they'll they will go, they will go full Q. You know, I enjoyed you at the beginning because it seemed like to me and you know one of my best friends from from school um it seemed like the ultimate interactive novel they finally did it you know they took it was like interactive novel meets reality tv so we're using the news 
as our fantasy role-playing uh, rule book. You know, so instead of dwarfs and dragons and, you know, uh, those, and uh, instead of those things, it's, you know, Iran and nukes and Hillary, you know, so you can construct a fantasy role-playing universe. And what they did, which was so sweet, was they created almost a yes and improvisatory world out of it. So one person could, you know, oh, Bill Gates put nano in his in his vaccines and the next person yes and you know they're being distributed at walmart yes and hillary clinton is a former board member of walmart yes and you know hillary clinton is is as children in the basement of this pizzeria you know so as long as and it didn't matter if it was inconsistent it was like this great um you know like uh uh, uh what's his name who's the guy that does a uh the brain, um, you know, the brain or a hypertext adventure. It's like everything connects to everything else. There's this great feeling of satisfaction that comes when you make another link and build another link and build another link. It's the great uh, stoned internet game, but it's not real, right? It's not real. Um, and it, when, it was when I saw the crossover, when I saw my friends, rather than doing it as play, you know, there's something so captivating about it. You know, so you, you, work in a magazine for a while, and then your editor cuts a paragraph that was important to you. We've all, as professional journalists, we've all had that. And usually a year later, we're thankful the editor cut that so we didn't look like a friggin' idiot at the time. You know, you may fight for it a little bit, but then you accept it as this is what it means to work with other people. And this is life. You know, these days, oh, they cut that paragraph. That's because they're censoring it. Because I'm saying the truth about vaccines and Hillary and Bill Gates and da da da, so I'm going to go off and make my own Substack now, taking my I ball and going you. elsewhere. Yeah, and and now you're gone, you know, and that, and then you you get audience capture, and the weirder you are, the more uh, positive reinforcement you get, and that and and then you're off to the races. And you know, I've seen some of the best minds of my generation, you know, go down that, um, go down that path, and it's it it's. It's a shame. It's a shame. And I know, you know, them if they're listening to me now, they're thinking, oh, that's because Rushkoff, you're still stuck in the paradigm. You're caught. And it's like, no, I'm I don't I'm dancing between paradigms here. You know, it's like it's really easy. It's like your your life back to back to Buddhism. Life is like the Tibetan Book of the Dead happens when you're alive. It's not necessarily when you're dead. There's the things to be afraid of that can make you fall off the even path and the things to be attracted to that make you fall off the path. How do you maintain, um, how do you entertain them all when actually believing none of them? You know, it's that, that Robert Anton Wilson like training that I think people need. It's that humor and, and it's all, it's all okay. It's okay to be um, skeptical of everything. And then you get, then you're doing the dance you know, but it's, it's a hard place to be, particularly in a scary world that feels like it's ending. Earlier, you talked about uh, tech bros mm -hmm. going down and you know, getting involved with psychedelics with their shaman. You also uh, observed how Burning Man is uh, somewhat changed from its uh, origins. And uh, who's to blame for that? 
blame um human nature i mean who's to blame you know that when i talk to people who were at the original acid tests that they did in the barns you know with stuart brand and the grateful dead and i'm like why did those stop and um stuart i think he was the one that told me he said oh you know well these guys showed up who just wanted to take advantage of tripping girls you know so who's to blame for that? You know, toxic masculinity, uh, society itself. Um, yeah, I think what's to blame for the, you know, let's call it the decline of Burning Man is the institutionalization of something. I think great things, like great TV shows, the best ones are sort of planned to have three or four, maybe five seasons. Then you let them go. You know, it's like it it, it kind of outstayed its welcome. And then it grew into this other thing of RVs. And, you know, once you've got people going to Burning Man with servants in and, and RVs, it's not it's not Burning Man anymore. It's something else, you know, but I've seen things maintain. I mean, the Grateful Dead parking lot kind of maintained its truth. Right. I mean, I was there in the, in the 90s and it seemed pretty fucking awesome still you know there there are things that do but you've got to really have a really good set and setting and the culture has to maintain that set and setting um and if you lose that then it goes but i mean everything does and it, uh, everything does and it's it's okay you know i mean i wonder how nascar started right <laughs> or the well, world my sense of it is it's kind of like i mean you hear this about austin all the time uh Austin has really grown and has become kind of a tech capital. And now Elon Musk lives here and Tesla is here. And uh, it's a really different place. I mean, it's radically different from Austin in the 1970s, 80s, whatever. But the people who've lived here all along and who were here in those times, they still have, they still know each other. They have places they go. I mean, I think Burning Man is the same way. I think people have been going to Burning Man for however long it's been, what, 30 years. Mm. They still go off into their right. niche and they're still doing the same thing. And for them, it's kind of the same thing, even though they've got a lot more shit right. going on around them. Well, I guess the Internet is, too. Right. Yeah. We were on the Internet before Usenet got connected to AOL and all the newbies came. Remember that moment when everyone came and wanted to know how to get, get download gifts because they were looking for porn. Um, it was like, oh my, they remember it was crazy, right? It was a crazy moment. Um, but those of us who were around it, we're still, you know, old school. You find your little places. There's places on Mastodon where I'm finding conversations that are like, oh my gosh, this is like, these are smart people having a real conversation. No one's worried about their hit counts and how many like it's just, oh, we're back. You know, yeah, that's Mastodon's a weird thing. Room. I mean, it's yeah. a weird thing in that sense that people are showing up that I haven't really communicated within years because there was so much noise on Twitter that I, you know, I never saw them, never heard from them. Well, they're all kind of showing up on Mastodon now. And it's like, it's like having a, a, a sense of community that you had lost and kind of remembering what it was and said, Oh yeah, this is what it is. So the internet was a thing early on that really did get changed and it became harder and harder to make those connections. I think. Yeah, but not impossible. And that's why I feel like our, our job now as a, the former counterculture um, 
is to keep a torch lit, you know, is just maintain a path for, you know, people from the future for, you know, that that's, and it's okay. I mean, not everyone has every job, you know, and it's okay. It's like, okay, so these people's job is to try to figure out climate and get corporations to stop da 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 and all that. Um, these people's job is to figure out currency and and have more equitable enterprise. And uh, and some people's job is how do we how do we keep a path lit? You know, and that's that's a pretty fucking valid <laughs> thing thing to be doing, right? And again, you're right. It's not a matter of throwing up one's arms and saying, "Oh, look what they did to the TED Talk. Look what they did to Burning Man." You know, yeah, you can complain. We can all sit and complain. Look what they did to pop music. Look what they did to you know Spotify. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe it started out that way, but um, you know, you 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 we still have alternatives. And when you talk, you know. Not that you got to go travel, but you talk to indigenous people. You talk to the Maori. You talk to, uh, uh, you know, the, go talk to the Hopi. They're a lot closer. Um, they're not quite worried the same way. There's not that scent, that that same uh, brittle understanding of culture. You know, there's a, a there's something else. You know, I talk to 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 people about, oh my God, the end of civilization, and they're like. Civilizations have died before. What do you think? Civilizations always die. Of course they die. You can't maintain the civilizations are, are born to die. Um, it's just I always feel like this one's going to take the whole thing down with it. You know, <laughs> the world will, will yeah, hit an oceanic tipping point of salinity and everything in it will die. All the fish are gone or um, or something else. It, it feels like um, to me that it feels like there, there are unhealable um, catastrophes that could um, that could come down the pike. Didn't are, Tyson uh, say something you like? Oh, there've been apocalypses before. Yeah, we lived through them. We recovered. Yeah, you know, yeah. you just got to keep moving. <laughs> yeah, the uh, politicians here in Texas are very much uh, trying to keep the status quo uh, with fossil fuels, you know, no matter how many times, you know, we uh, witnessed, you know, the degradation of the environment, they still have all of these great uh, fossil fuel companies here in Texas that uh, manage to uh, direct any uh, legislation that might harm them, you know, into the uh, wastebasket of <laughs> the legislature. And uh, that seems to be happening all over the country, all over the world, actually. Yeah, it's hard. They do seem to have a capture on on that. I mean, and that's part of why some really disparate groups have the same um, kind of accelerationist uh, agenda. You know, you've got the sort of Zizek extreme Marxists on the one hand saying, let's just tear it all down. Uh, you know, 9-11 was necessary. Uh, Trump is necessary because it's going to rip, it's going to tear apart, you know, the neoliberal order. And you've got the fascists who want that because it will tear down democracy. And you got the authoritarians who want it because it tears down the, uh, uh, you know, the, the technocratic state. So uh, the, 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 this, this uh, uh, capture of our society by, you know, large multinational conglomerates, makes strange bedfellows 
out of environmentalists, anti-Semites, you know, and uh, uh, libertarians. Uh, I don't think that tearing things down is really um, is really ever the best approach. I'm I'm much more of an incrementalist. How do we move towards? You know, I I feel like what most of these movements lack is a coherent theory of change. They all have an end. They have an enemy and an end goal, but they don't actually have a theory of change that's that's nonviolent or that that centers the most vulnerable as we as we move forward. And I think if they focused on the theory of change rather than the end state, they end up getting somewhere way, way better. I mean, it's a way more Buddhist approach, but your theory of change is your movement. That's all you've got is your theory of change. So what are we going to do? You know, and that's why in 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 my book, in my work, I go to super simple things. Like you got to make a hole in your wall to hang a picture. What are you going to do? Are you going to go to Home Depot and get a minimum viable product drill that will maybe work twice until you have to throw it away? Or do you have the courage to go to your neighbor and knock on the door and ask if you could use their drill? They're nice, big metal drill that's going to last 50 years and you can share it. And yes, they might knock on your door and ask if they can borrow something of yours after that. That's not a scary thing. That's a good thing. That's called community. It's fun. You may learn the person's name and then want to play cards with them. They may have a beautiful niece that you get married to. It's like it's all good. You know, and and if we we can slowly look for opportunities to meet people and share with other people, and that's mine. It kind of it 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 regrows, it retrieves community. It means yes, if you're buying less drills, then what happens to all those jobs at the drill company? Going to force you to look. Oh, wait a minute. So what do we do? Do I live my life in order to serve the economy, or do I need to build an economy that serves? who we are now. What if we actually don't need to work five days a week? What if it turns out we only need three days of labor per person? What if it turns out the main reason why people are getting jobs now is not because we need work done, but because we need a way to justify sharing the spoils of capitalism with them? Well, then what? You know, So these are the sort of super simple ways to unwind what has become untenable and to start living life as as um, I was going to say as it should be lived, but to start living life as we might want and choose to live it. Well, there's something, I think that you said something in your book about how we're not, we're not solitary. You know, we're not like a, a bunch of individuals. We're all connected in some way. Yeah. And we have I mean, to acknowledge those connections. Yeah. Being human is a team sport. There's no such thing as an individual. Even our nervous systems are are connected to. You don't need ESP or whatever polyvagal theory. You know, you're not. There's not one nervous system. How do your cells talk to each other? Well, it's the same as human beings. You know, we are we are uh, uh, well potentially anyway acting acting in concert with each other. And even if we're not acting in concert with each other, we are feeling um, with one another. It takes a lot of effort for a billionaire to be able to cut himself off from all the other people around him. We're feeling it all the time, the same way your dog knows you're coming home before you even open the door. They feel you, well, we feel each other too. That's not gone. Um, and once we open up to that, um, boy, the, uh, uh, 
one's priorities change pretty fast. Well, our hour is up, and that sounds like a perfect place to end our conversation. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thank you. See you guys soon. Okay, we'll see you. Have a great one. Take care. You can follow the Plutopia News Network at plutopia.io. On Facebook, go to at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. With John Lepkowski, I'm Scoop Sweeney. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future.